Hello, and welcome to Pin Drop World News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, here to guide us through today's show as we explore the news around Nepal, specifically the country's foreign policy, the government's efforts to develop its economy, and the state of Nepal's fragile democracy 17 years on from civil war. We'll be hearing from Michael Kugelman, a writer for foreign policy and the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center, as well as Santosh Sharma Pudel, co-founder of the Nepali Institute for Policy Research. Now, before we get on with today's episode, a couple of notes. First of all, if you're seeing this on YouTube, congratulations. This is our first ever YouTube video for Pindrop. And if you're listening on podcast, well, yes, you can find this episode on YouTube as well. The difference, well, you can probably figure it out for yourself. Video, you get to see our faces, the faces of our guests, and for the introductions where we talk about the history and politics of countries, a few photos of those events every now and then. Uh, but besides that, it's really just that podcast, well, it's a little bit more mobile than the YouTube video is. So if you'd prefer one or the other, take your choice. It's all the same to us. The other note is that even though we are doing this episode on Nepal right now, we are not blind to the fact that world news is captivated by the ongoing Israel-Hamas war. And in fact, right now, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening on Spotify, Amazon Music, or Apple Podcasts, we also have a bonus episode out where we talk with political scientist Dr. Jenab Tutunji about the security implications and the regional politics that are being affected by this ongoing war. We're actually doing a series of bonus content episodes about this war. We're already going to be speaking with Dr. Ned Lazarus of the George Washington University. Myself and Diego will be and possibly more episodes on that to come. Right. That's stuff out of the way. Let's get into the episode. Before we get into the news, though, it is country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about Nepal. We certainly don't, even after this week. So here are some fast facts. Its capital is Kathmandu. Its official language is Nepali. Its currency is the Nepalese rupee. Its president is Ram Chandra Pudel. Its prime minister is Pushpa Kamal Dahal. It has a population of 30 million people and its dialing code is plus 977. Now, you've also probably already heard the fun fact that Nepal is the only non-rectangular world flag. But did you also know that as a percentage of its population, it has the greatest Hindu population of any country? Although India, its southern neighbor, has 94% of the world's Hindus, Nepal is more than 81% Hindu, making it, again, per capita, the most Hindu country in the world. Now, let's get into a rundown of the country's history and politics. In the 18th century, Nepal's first monarch, King Prithvi Naraya Shah, called the country a yam between two boulders, referring to its position between China and India. Well, much has changed since then. This adage is still relevant. 
although Nepal's current position could perhaps be better described as a yan between three boulders, with the U.S. now entering the scene. In an age of great power competition in South Asia between India, China, and the U.S., Nepal has been caught in the middle. Nepal sees itself as a non-aligned country and tries to maintain a delicate balancing act among these boulders. But this is becoming increasingly difficult. For one, India considers Nepal to be within its sphere of influence, although some developments in recent years have caused tension with Nepal. India has long been a source of investment and trade and played an important role in bringing about a peace deal between the Nepalese government and Maoist insurgents towards the end of its civil war in the early 2000s. However, in 2015, Nepal faced an unofficial blockade that many felt India was complicit in. Three months earlier, Nepal had adopted a new constitution, which was negatively received by its ethnic Madeshi minority, who largely live along the Nepal-India border and felt that they were not given enough representation. The Madeshi staged protests, where they blocked some entry points for trucks carrying vital supplies. Further, Nepal accused India of being complicit in this blockade and blocking their own transfers of supplies, triggered by their discontent with the new constitution. India did indeed express discontent with the new constitution and put forth a seven-point demand for amendments a few days after it was promulgated. As for why India was discontented, some would say that they did not wish to see ethnic instability in their neighboring country. Well, harsher critics would call it an attempt to exert control over Nepal's affairs. While India denied imposing a blockade, very few supplies were getting in across the border. And while Nepal no longer faces an unofficial blockade, this has been a source of discontent with India. Additionally, Nepal and India faced border disputes in 2019 and 2020. In 2019, India released a new political map, which Nepalese officials claimed was incorrectly drawn, leading to anti-India protests. The Nepalese government then released its map, which showed certain Indian territories as Nepali. While Nepal and India have been able to place these issues on a back burner and move forward with other business, these still serve as a source of irritation politically. As for China, its influence in Nepal has risen along with China's more general rise, and this has only been aided by Nepal's troubles with India. India's 2015 blockade showed just how Indian blocked Nepal was, especially regarding trade. Nepal quickly looked to China to break that dependence, and several deals have been signed ever since. This includes agreements to use Chinese ports to access third countries, and Nepal joining the Belt and Road Initiative in 2017, as well as Xi Jinping's 2019 visit to Nepal, which saw the two countries enter into a strategic partnership. Using the Belt and Road Initiative, China has sought to help Nepal build a railroad through the Himalayas to better connect the two countries. Only a few years after the BRI, as it is sometimes shortened, began, China became the largest source of foreign investment, a position traditionally held by India. Additionally, for decades, the Himalayas served as an isolating influence between Nepal and China, and such a project as the railroad would be of high significance. As our guest Santosh Sharma Prudel explains, Nepal's motivation to build this railroad is 
also tied to its desire to become less India-locked. Yet a lack of progress on this initiative, largely for economic reasons, has created discontent in Beijing. Finally, China has used Nepal's Maoist parties to try to exert political influence to get some of these parties to merge and increase their parliamentary power. China's rising influence in Nepal has brought the U.S. into the scene as well. In response to the 2017 Belt and Road Initiative receiving Nepal as a new member, the U.S. also proposed a $500 million Millennium Challenge Corporation infrastructure grant that very same year. U.S. influence has especially stepped up in 2022. Nepal finally ratified the Millennium Challenge Corporation grant, and that same year, several high-ranking U.S. officials visited Nepal. USA Director and Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland then announced that the U.S. would be investing $1 billion into clean energy, electrification, and small businesses over the next five years. It's important to note that these U.S. visits came under a month after former Maoist rebel leader Prachanda was sworn in as prime minister for the third time in Nepal's history. Still, Nepal refused to form a military training alliance with the Utah National Guard and has distanced itself from the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy as part of its balancing effort. A large reason it took Nepal five years to ratify the MCC is that a U.S. official tried to tie it to the Indo-Pacific strategy, which created controversy. Mr. Pudel sums up the situation well. Quote, with China's rise, Chinese engagement has increased, and that has pushed Nepal into the geostrategic quagmire at regional levels between India and China and at the global level between China and the U.S., end quote. Nepal has also seen profound changes in its domestic politics over time. A common theme has been attempts to, at democracy muddied by parliamentary inefficiency. Until the 1950s, Nepal was ruled by the authoritarian Rana dynasty, who reduced the monarch to a figurehead. However, the years leading up to the 1950s saw a growing nationalist movement that would work with King Tribhuvan to try to remove the Ranas from power. After growing tension, King Tribhuvan, with Indian support, succeeded in removing the Rana regime in 1951. This would be followed by a democratic constitution, but with ultimate power lying in the monarch. Yet this attempt at democracy was short-lived. Feeling the democracy was run inefficiently, the next king, Mahendra, dismissed the cabinet and announced the formation of a partyless political system called Panchayat in 1961. Another change would occur in the 1990s due to a mass multi-party movement that brought an end to this absolute monarchy and a new constitutional monarchy with multi-party democracy. However, this success was, again, short-lived. Parliamentary deadlock, poor socioeconomic conditions in the countryside, economic inequality, and many other factors would soon after bring about the beginning of a Maoist insurgency, which would grow into a fully-fledged civil war. In 2005, King Gayendra decided to dissolve parliament and take absolute power. This was a brief power grab as Gayendra gave up absolute power in 2006 after mass demonstrations. That same year, the civil war came to an end. And two years later, 
Nepal would go on to be declared a federal democratic republic and the monarchy would be abolished. This would see the Maoist insurgents, who are more ideologically aligned with China, go from being rebels to taking part in the governance of the country. Nepal's democracy has been successful on paper, but it's not without its shortcomings. As our guests will expand on more, while the country has maintained free and fair elections, it has largely seen three men dominate the political process. Current Prime Minister Prachanda of the Communist Party of Nepal, Maoist Center, there are several communist parties in Nepal, K.P. Sharma Oli of the Communist Party of Nepal, Unified Marxist-Leninist, and Sher Badra Debua of the Nepali Congress. At the same time, Nepalese parliamentarians have been criticized for forming coalitions for the sake of gaining power, rather than out of a sense of common interest for the country's vision. As we have seen, Nepal has a history of parliamentary shortcomings that have contributed to profound changes, whether a royal coup or a civil war. This time, parliamentary shortcomings have contributed to rising discontent with the way things are run, which have played a role in two matters, rising Hindu nationalism and rising independent political movements. As Hindu nationalism has risen in India, along with the BJP party in that country, it too has increased in Nepal, which is a Hindu-majority country. This ties into a sense among segments of the population that Nepal's secular Republican constitution has not delivered. There is also a movement to reestablish the monarchy, although it has not gained significant momentum. Additionally, the last Nepalese election saw the success of independent politicians, including the victory of political outsider and rapper Balin Shah in the mayoral elections of Kathmandu. Now, we will proceed to our guests. First, we will speak with Michael Kugelman, the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. And after that, we will speak with Santosh Sharma Pudel, the co-founder of the Nepal Institute for Policy Research. Our guests will expand on Nepal's tricky geopolitical balancing act, its economic development, the state of its democracy, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pindrop. Today on our panel, we are joined by Michael Kugelman. Michael Kugelman is the writer of Foreign Policy's Weekly South Asia Brief and the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. Michael, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Good to be here with you. So, Michael, in the news now, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is featuring very heavily, and this connects to Nepal in a very unfortunate way because 10 Nepalese agricultural students were just killed by Hamas in a kibbutz near the Gaza Strip. And this makes me wonder as to what impact this will have on Nepalese society, because as far as I'm concerned, I'm not sure if Nepal has ever seen a mass casualty event like this abroad. I'm not sure if something like this ever happened in Afghanistan with its Gurkha soldiers. But from my experience as an American, when there's a mass casualty event like this abroad, it could have quite an impact on a nation's mentality. And I'm wondering if you know, um, based on your experience with Nepal, if this will have any societal impact over there. Unfortunately, Nepal is, is actually no stranger to tragedy um, in terms of its, its nationals abroad. Um, Nepal, you know, as you know, is a very poor country. And uh, this means that you have a 
very large number of Nepalese migrant workers, um, mainly in uh, the Gulf region, uh, particularly the Arab Gulf region, uh, the UAE, uh, and mainly the UAE, but some of the surrounding countries as well. And um, there have been some some exposés in the Western media, including a New York Times piece some months ago, um, showing that there have been a significant number of Nepalese workers that have died uh, laboring in terrible conditions. Um, mainly, you know, they die of heat exhaustion, something like that. Now, this is very different from a, a mass casualty attack, such as what we had in uh, in Israel, so to speak. But, you know, still there is this this uh, this experience, unfortunately, uh, in Nepal of um, you know people being based abroad and uh, facing tragedy. Uh, obviously, this is very different because we're talking about students, young people, not workers. But um, you know, I, I don't know if I would say that this could be something akin to what you have in, say, the United States when you have, say, a mass shooting or something like that, and the response and the 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 the, the reaction that you get in that context. I should say that uh, you know Nepal is a, a country that is uh, very remote, and there there are plenty of um, people that don't have access to this type of information and wouldn't necessarily know that uh, that this happened. So I think that we have to be talking about um, you know those that uh, you know have the ability to access uh, technologies that enable them to know that something like this uh, actually happened. But certainly, um, I think that um, within Kathmandu and in other areas where people would know exactly what happened and what's going on, it would certainly be uh, seen as trauma. But I'm not I wouldn't say that something a tragedy like this would prompt uh, Nepalese families to decide not to have their kids study abroad. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I think a lot of what we're mentioning uh, includes economic issues in Nepal and when I was reading about the Nepalese civil war, it seemed like some of the conditions that created that atmosphere were socioeconomic grievances, especially in the countryside, which is what made the Maoist so popular in some areas. So I'm wondering how Nepal has fared with economic development since the end of the civil war. Has it been able to address some of these root issues that caused that to break out? Well, certainly economically, it has come a long way, um, and particularly in more recent years, as it's been able to uh, diversify its array of, uh, of foreign partners, it's built up a, a deeper relationship with the United States, for example, and this has meant that uh, it has more access to financing and, and assistance. And some of the big um, multilateral uh, donors and the IFIs, uh, the ADB and the World Bank and so on, you know, have been present to uh, to provide assistance to uh, to Nepal, but still, on the whole, I would argue that Nepal's economy suffers from a number of structural deficits uh, that have made it very difficult to really um, become a more stable place uh, economically. And you know, one one very prime example of what I describe as, as structural deficits is that um, it's a country that is very heavily dependent on on imports, including expensive imports, you know, fuel imports, uh, for example. And at the same time, uh, it's really struggled to diversify its export base. It's um, very reliant. Uh, its its economy is very reliant on uh, on on agricultural exports. But um, you know, unfortunately, in Nepal. These agricultural products are not competitive uh, compared to those of its neighbors and, and other competitors around the world. 
And you, obviously, you know what that means, right? I mean, this means that you're essentially always going to be at risk for a serious uh, balance of payments uh, crisis, debt, and so on. And it also means that you are very vulnerable to any type of significant global economic shock. And you know, we know that over the last few years, there have been uh, a rapid succession of global economic shocks, big ones too, starting with the pandemic, and then more recently, the war in Ukraine. And depending on how it stretches out, this this terrible new war in uh, in Gaza and Israel, you know, you could have a, a series of of shocks that raise oil uh, global oil prices, and this means that the effects of those shocks will play out particularly acutely in Nepal, as they have. I mean, we've seen around the world in so many countries over the last year or so, uh, you know, high inflation, you know, high commodity costs and uh, countries facing more debt. It's been happening in a lot of places, but Nepal has had a, um, a particularly difficult experience with this as well, not on the level that its neighbors, uh, Pakistan or Sri Lanka have, for example, but still it has been hit hard by these issues and you know, making things worse is that Nepal was one of the most, um, one of the countries in South Asia that was most hard hit by, by COVID. Uh, experienced a particularly horrific, deadly wave uh, at one point during the pandemic. So yeah, unfortunately, the, the economy is really not in in very good shape. And, uh, you know, it really is, I would argue, um, at the end of the day, one of the least developed countries in the world. It, it sounds to me when you talk about these uh, sort of prime economic problems, it to me sounds like it translates to geography at the end of the day. It's a small country that's very mountainous and that's landlocked. That's part of the reason it can be hard to export things. That's part of the reason you can be so reliant on imports. You don't have as much uh, agricultural land, for example, and as much space. I know Kathmandu, there's often talks about the sort of flat area that it's on being too small for the population boom it's seen. Uh, it seems to me like it might come down to geography largely in a way. I don't know if you all agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I think that's a very important point. You're right. It is a landlocked country. Uh, it's uh, it's on very rugged terrain. And, you know, a bigger issue here is that um, its neighbors in the broader South Asia region is simply not very integrated, not very connected. You just don't really have very good, uh, you, you don't really have any good um, uh, infrastructure uh, at all, particularly in terms of, um, you know, enough good roads, bridges, rails, and so on to allow Nepal to be better connected to its neighbors. Um, and so and for that reason, traditionally, Nepal had been very reliant on support from India, which I think that for many years was probably its closest partner. Uh, and India had been a significant source of economic support. But because there's so little trade that goes on within South Asia, um, that I think just prolongs Nepal's economic challenges. We are starting to see a bit of a shift for the better, in my view. Uh, one of the big good news stories to emerge from the region in recent months, and there aren't that many good news stories, but one of them is uh, a lot of forward movement on a new um, electricity sharing arrangement involving Nepal as well as India and Bangladesh. And, you know, Nepal, as you know, it's very rich in, in hydro uh, supplies. It's a very water rich, or a relatively water rich country. And so it's been able to partner with Bangladesh and India, which provide their own comparative advantages in this, in this, in this scheme. And, you know, this is, this has been good because um, it helps strengthen connectivity prospects. And I, I do think that, um, you know, one could argue that if Nepal were in a position to be able to enjoy more commerce and access to markets in its immediate in its immediate neighborhood, 
because of better connectivity, that could really bring big long-term boost to its own economic growth. And I think it's important that we're talking about these issues about Nepal's economic struggles and its geography, because I think these things both really come into play concerning great power competition and over the region. Um, I mean, in, in recent years, we've seen sort of this triadic nexus where there's border disputes with India and there was a, a blockade, I believe, in 2015. Um, there's also been rising Hindu nationalism within Nepal. Meanwhile, China's Belt and Road Initiative has stepped up and it seems a bit concerned over the lack of progress on uh, railway construction over the mountains, whereas the U.S. in response has increased its courting of Nepal, as you wrote about in foreign policy and provided a big grant in 2022. So how, how do you think these relations will change in the future? And how do you think this will tie into Nepal's economic struggles? Nepal's foreign policy and its foreign policy interests are very different now. They're much more, uh, they're much more, I should say, than they were uh, in, in previous decades. And that is because uh, Nepal didn't really have much of a foreign policy uh, in the sense that it was very, it was focused on ensuring good relations with its you know, small number of, of, of friends that it had, particularly uh, India. And then, of course, there was that period, that decade-long period where it was, it was plunged into this terrible civil war. Uh, but, you know, since then, since 2006, when that war ended, you know, we have started to see a shift in that it has sought to um, strengthen its relations with the broader neighborhood, which, again, is difficult because the neighborhood is not very easy to access. There's not much connectivity. But um, I think that Nepal has really been a sort of impacted, I guess, passively uh, in a sense that it sort of has been sitting there as this great power rivalry has been intensifying on so many levels, uh, certainly India-China rivalry, as well as U.S.-China um, rivalry. And Nepal, I think, finds itself in a position that many other countries in South Asia do. Most of the, the governments in South Asia are, are non-aligned, meaning that they, they try to keep themselves out of alliances. They try to maintain flexibility so that they could have relations with as many different powers, including competing powers and players as they can. So this means that Nepal wants to manage its relations with the U.S., with India, and with China, and not get caught up in these intensifying great power rivalries. But it's been increasingly difficult for it to do that, particularly when it's, 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 its core interests, including and especially its economic interests, are well served by trying to strengthen relations with these countries as much as it can. So, for example, you know, Nepal joined the Belt, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, some years ago because Nepal is woefully short on infrastructure. It badly needs infrastructure. And that's what BRI is all about. Well, no, it's not what it's all. It's, it's about more than just infrastructure, but infrastructure development is a major focus of um, BRI investments. So, you know, for Nepal, it was important for it to be a part of this initiative. But by being a part of BRI, you know, there's then this perception that it's somehow, you know, aligned with uh, with China. Um, hence, then, you know, you come to this, the, the very interesting story of the Millennium Challenge Corporation grant, the MCC grant that was gifted to Nepal a number of years ago. It's an infrastructure grant. Again, Nepal really needs infrastructure. But this MCC grant became very controversial in domestic politics in Nepal because some years back, a senior U.S. official had explicitly linked this MCC grant to the U.S.'s Indo-Pacific strategy. 
And the Indo-Pacific strategy is something that is meant to counter China, even though if U.S. officials would never say that publicly. So that then meant that Nepal risked that, you know, by embracing this, uh, this, this infrastructure grant, by taking it on, it could be perceived as jumping into the U.S. camp, which is not what Nepal wants. And it's actually several years that went by uh, when the parliament in Nepal refused to ratify the, the grant for that very reason. Which is which is a, a tough thing to do because it really could benefit from that infrastructure assistance. Uh, the last few months, uh, Nepal ended up signing on to it, but it's very interesting that um, uh, just a few weeks after Nepal ratified that grant, um, Prachanda, the current uh, head of uh, current prime minister of Nepal, he took a trip to Beijing, and what came out of that trip to Beijing? Uh, a number of new agreements, including one that pledged to intensify or accelerate. Um, progress on on BRI. So here's Nepal trying to you know do everything it can to uh, ensure access to badly needed infrastructure, but in so doing, it risks putting itself in a position where it could get caught up in this these great power competitions that it does not want to be a part of. So it's clearly a very difficult balancing act for Nepal to uh, to pull off in its in its broader foreign policy. Um, but you know, I think it's important that we not soft pedal the challenge and the difficulties that Kathmandu faces in trying to stay above the fray of these great power competitions, especially as they intensify uh, more and more. And, you know, there's some pretty powerful tools at play here. I mean, that, that can be wielded as, as leverage. You know, China has BRI. It knows how much Nepal uh, needs infrastructure. And the U.S. with the Indo-Pacific strategy and the various tools associated with that that also focus on infrastructure development. I mean, the specific MCC grant for Nepal, but also tools like the um, the uh, Development Finance Corporation, which is a U.S. government agency that sponsors or is meant to sponsor new infrastructure projects, mainly focused on clean energy infrastructure in countries across the Indo-Pacific. And again, that's something that Nepal really would, would like to have, uh, so to speak. So. It really is a, a challenge for Nepal, but as, as I think you suggested, to this point, Kathmandu has has succeeded in balancing all these relations and remaining non-aligned. And in earlier in our discussion about Nepal's politics or foreign policy, I'm happy that uh, Prashanda and the Maoist were mentioned because pretty predictably, the Maoist party seemed to favor China more. And during the civil war, the U.S. was pretty vehemently opposed to Maoist and offered support to both kings who ruled Nepal during that war. Um, and now, of course, the Maoists are a strong political force with Prashanda, who is the leader of them during the Civil War, being the prime minister. So I'm wondering how will the future status of the Maoist parties um, affect Nepal's ability to continue to be a neutral party between this increasingly difficult balance of three powers. And for that matter, the additional fact that like the center Maoists are willing to work with the Nepali Congress. You know, for me, one of the really interesting case studies looking at this question of the, uh, the leftist parties against the backdrop of great power competition, you know, we know that um, the Maoist parties are uh, to a significant degree ideologically aligned with China and China knows that. And China would feel that its interests in Nepal would be better served if these Maoist parties were in a position of power or influence. So we started to see uh, some months ago um, some reporting and some analysis indicating that China was actually doing something that it does not do in many countries. And that is actually 
meddling, for lack of a better term, trying to engage with these different a series of different major leftist parties to try to get them to to unite, to merge, on the assumption that if they were to unite and come together, it would be easier for them to um, uh, to it would be easier for them to perform well politically and be a part of a of a new of a future government. And that's basically what happened. You did have these different parties, these different leftist parties come together. It contributed to the the outcome that allowed Prachanda to become the the, uh, the prime minister of of Nepal for the third time. So, very interesting how this is all uh, how this is all played out. But you know, I, I think that it is also important just putting in a word about democracy on the whole. Um, you know, we've talked about how you've had these Maoist leaders and parties that have been able to play a role in, 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 in democracy, and not only that, uh, be in a position to be quite influential in Nepal's democracy. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it hasn't always been this way in the sense that for, for so many years, Nepal was a constitutional monarchy. Uh, if you go back to the, to the 80s, you started to see some loosening of restrictions on democracy. Uh, you had a number of political parties that were able to operate in the 80s. Into the 90s, the monarchy became uh, weaker because of new legislation. Um, and so then you came to 2008 when the monarchy was dissolved, you had a constitutional democracy. Um, the interesting thing is that the, one of the big complaints in Nepal today about democracy is not as much the issue of democracy itself, because procedurally it's alive and well, you have elections and so on, you know, assaults on rights, crackdowns on, on dissent. It's not happening as sharply and intensely and visibly as it is in countries like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, so many other countries in the region. But more so, there is a sense of of unhappiness about this perceived Game of Thrones that is constantly playing out in Nepal, where political figures are always shifting allegiances and alliance, pursuing political agendas at the cost of the public welfare. And, and this is something that's resulted in a lot of political instability uh, over the last 15 years in the sense that governments don't last long, alliances are weak and collapse. You have a number of elections, but it's always the same cast of characters that come to power. It's the same small group. So it's sort of like this merry-go-round. And this is something that is very frustrating for many in Nepal, especially the younger generation that you know may not remember how things used to be so much worse when you didn't have democracy. And of course, when you had a terrible war uh, as well. This has been a constant issue in Nepal's history that has led to like very wide systemic changes. This issue of parliamentary deadlock and mm -hmm. uh, party politics not being conducive to success. We saw this in 1960 in the royal coup because this parliamentary deadlock throughout the 50s played a role in that. Um, we saw this leading to the outbreak of the civil war after the democratization of the 90s. And we once again saw parliament then be dissolved in, I think, 2005 by King Gayanendra. And this, this disillusionment, you said, of the same types of people being in power also plays a role. It played a big role with the Ranas back in the 50s, and it, it plays a role with uh, the Brahmin Hill people who have dominated that um, politics, I believe. So, And now we're seeing a similar issue with this dissatisfaction over sort of what people might describe as parliamentary incompetence. I mean, in the 20, 2022 elections, it was very low voter turnout and people seem to be unhappy with establishment figures. So do you, do you think that this issue of parliamentary deadlock or inability to deliver will improve in the future? Or do you think that 
even even more do you think that the state of democracy could be um, in peril if this type of stuff continues? We have seen what I would describe as a uh, a small but persistent display of um, pro monarchy sentiment in in Nepal, in the sense that you know you do have sizable numbers of people that um, you know for whatever reason would like to bring the monarchy back, at least for for some of these. Uh, backers of the idea of restoring the monarchy, things have gotten so bad with parliamentary democracy that maybe it's better to um, to return to how uh, things used to be in the past. Now, so long as that is the, the, the constituencies that support the restoration of the monarchy become relatively limited, I don't think that you're going to see uh, the calculus of those parliamentarians or other political figures change in the sense that they're, you know, they, they won't necessarily be prompted to think it's time to take drastic steps to, to change the system and, and, and make it work better. I think the, the refrain from, from those in power and those in the broader political class would be, look, this is, you know, we, Nepal, this is democracy. Democracy can be messy, but this is democracy. And this is surely better than uh, than the alternative. And that would be a return to a system where you don't have democracy or a return to uh, to instability and, uh, and and conflict. So I think that for now, that would be the response. And again, I, I have not seen any surveys on this. I'm not sure there have been any surveys on this, but I'd like to think that generally speaking, public opinion in Nepal would be heavily weighted toward the current uh, the current political system, that of parliamentary democracy, warts and all. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. This was Michael Kugelman, the director of the South Asia Institute at the Wilson Center. Michael, thank you so much for coming on, and we appreciate your insights. Well, thank you. This was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Now we will go to our next guest, Santosh Sharma Pudel. Santosh is a foreign policy analyst based in Nepal and the co-founder of the Nepali Institute for Policy Research. Um, while the Nepalese population uh, seems to be quite sympathetic to the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, China seems to have signaled mm -hmm. discontent over Nepal's lack of progress there, um, even though Nepal insisted on the project, especially concerning the formation of a railroad connecting Nepal mm -hmm. to China. Um, so why do you think Nepal has stalled on the belts and road initiative on one hand, while seeming to make more progress with US initiatives like the MCC on the other? But I think part of the reason why BRI, Nepal has not been able to implement any BRI project is the project that we have selected, of which the Trans-Border Himalayan network, uh, rail network is the key component that is massive, aspirational, but then that's a very political project rather than a economically calculated project to start with. I think it's like a dream that Nepalese political leaders always had when they thought of Nepal's sovereign decision making. I think it kind of symbolizes that. It also seem, uh, the railway network that we have talked a lot basically symbolizes to at one level that Nepal is not India locked, that Nepal can exercise its sovereignty 
and it can access other countries without having to deal with India as well. So in that sense, it's a very political project. However, I think that there are technical difficulties with constructing that. And it's not insurmountable, but the cost will be huge. I think even the generous estimates of the cost ranges around seven to 10 billion US dollars. Now, for a country with GDP that's roughly around 30, 35 USD, that's a huge undertaking. I think together with that comes NEPI's expectations that China will provide some grant to build that as a gift. However, I think what we have seen with most of the BRI projects, China is not very keen on building the BRI projects on grants. It's mostly loans, and even the loans that China has provided are less attractive than the conditional loans, for example, that the old bank or ADB provides. Like to focus as well on Nepal's relations with India, which have soured in recent years. As you mentioned earlier, India imposed an unofficial blockade in 2015 in response to Nepal's new constitution, and tensions rose over borders agreements in 2019 and 2020. Uh, what would you say the status is of Nepal India relations? Um, especially since Prashanda has taken office because he did meet Modi uh, soon after that and they seem to make progress on, on some smaller issues. One very unique nature of Nepal-India relations is that it's so multifaceted, multidimensional, and the scope is so huge that no matter how badly it goes, there's a certain bottom on which, after which it will spring back again to normalcy. I think that's what we saw in 2015 with the blockage. It was at an added, I think that was one of the lowest points. And then with 2020, when Nepal uh, made the constitutional amendment regarding the disputed territory, again, it was at another nadir. But is, was, as usual in Nepal-India relations, I think three years down the line, that issue remains, but that has largely been on the back burner. So in that sense, the relations has returned to normalcy. I think Indian influence has, again, increased a bit, especially when it comes to India in the last uh, few years. Indian influence, especially the RSS influence, the Rastriyastwam which is the ideological preference to Bharatiya Janata Party, its influence has also increased in Nepal. So that Hindutva ideology that has been going on in India since 2014 with BJP's victory, even that has stepped into Nepal. Right, and, and you did speak about this uh, rising internationalism in Nepal, which is the topic I want to transition to as we move towards um, domestic politics. Um, and this is an issue you have written about too, um, which, and it's, it's an interesting occurrence because Nepal seems to have uh, become more secular, especially since the 90s, at least formally, um, in its constitution. Um, so what do you think is behind rising internationalism in Nepal? And do you think that it has the potential to change uh, Nepalese-Indian relations in the future? 
And I think uh, Nepal became a secular state in, in 2007, and formally, uh, I think the 2015 constitution that we had formalized that uh, as a secular state. However, I think Nepal has been a Hindu state for a really long time. And through certain sections of population, that is how it used to be. And with, I think, more than 80% of the people following Hindu religion, I think there was always that, even though Nepal was declared legally a secular state, I think in practice, Nepal was still a culturally Hindu country. As in, I'm just making a distinction there between religiously Hindu and a culturally Hindu because in terms of practice, for example, our secularism was a limited kind of secularism in the sense that we define secularism as accepting of all religions, but preserving the religion that has been passed on since a long time, which was basically another way of saying Hinduism. Now, to start with, I think secularism was never among the core agendas of the most insurgency. I think this was an agenda that gained momentum towards the fact end of the of that particular revolution that we had. And then for a lot of people, they felt that it was just inserted when there were other changes, political changes or political demands that were going on. And for a lot of them, they felt it was not our own idea per se, but it was inserted there by the Westerners who wanted to promote largely Christianity in Nepal. So that being the thought process among quite a few of the general population, but then I think the leaders were aware of this, but still, I think they went along. The problem started when I think the new system without the king, the secular Republican, republicanism, would not deliver what most people expected the new system to deliver, which was development, economic growth, more jobs, which is basically the bread and butter issues. That the new system, it appeared that didn't make much difference to people's lives. So in that sense, again, more people, I think even more people started to go back to that nostalgia, whereby there used to be Nepal is a Hindu nation, at least, they had their identity that they could identify with. And with the, with the secular nation, their identity was gone, their lives hadn't improved as they expected. Probably that's why that Hindu nationalism, which was just under the scheme, began to resurface. We had democracy in the sense that there were two elections. And since 2015, the two scheduled elections has happened on time. However, I think uh, one issue that Nepal had in terms of the mentality or the, in terms of the social structure is that it used to be a very feudal society. It still is a feudal society. That is why the mindset of a lot of people, even though the political practice is democratic, the mentality is still quite feudal in the sense that, uh, for example, the intra-party intra democracy is largely unheard of. I think Prasanna, who is now the prime minister, he has been the head of the party 
for the last 30, 35 years. I think as far back as I can recall. Even within NC, Nepali Congress, there's little democracy. In that sense, we are practicing democracy without really internalizing what democracy means or what democratic practice means or what institutionalizing democracy means. So in that sense, we have elections which are largely free and fair, but in practice, the decision making that has happened in the last uh, two decades or so, especially since 2006, has been largely between made by Prasanna, Kepioli, Tervado Deva, the three leaders of the three major parties, which in effect is not a very democratic practice. Right? And with regards to, again, coalitions and stuff, I think. Nepal is unique in the sense that the communist parties have found no qualms about uh, getting in coalitions with other non-communist parties. Actually, I think communist parties have found it more difficult to be in a coalition with other communist parties. So it's interesting in that sense that Nepali Congress has largely had common with Maoist, with CPN UML or with some even rightist parties. I think another reason why I think the parties have, have less qualms with having this sort of coalition is these coalitions are largely tools to get to power and then exercise power more than to deliver certain policies for the people. That is why we had a lot messy governance in the last despite the political changes we had, the governance, the governing system has barely changed. What reforms do you think can and should be made in order to improve the functioning of Nepal's democracy? I think another positive change that we saw in the last election was we saw the emergence of new parties. I think the uh, Rastri Sotantra Party, which was established, I think, uh, three or four months before the election, was able to become the fourth largest party, almost almost as big as the Maoist party led by Prasanna. And this has given a good scare to the traditional mainstream political parties that, you know, unless they improve upon their work, chances are in next election, they could be all be uh, set away. I think we saw a hint of that in the local elections as well, especially uh, for the election of the mayor of Kathmandu, which is the capital city. An independent candidate was able to win the Kathmandu's mayoral seat, despite all the expectations to the contrary. Like this guy who won the election is a young candidate, a rapper, an engineer by training. And then he came out of nowhere and he does not even belong to the dominant ethnic community which lives in the capital. People were frustrated at the status quo of them electing certain leaders, but then none of them delivered. I think one, another one policy intervention which could be done is, and which happened a bit in the last election was, I think the overall cost of election was brought down by limiting the number of days that parties could, could campaign, the kind of activities that parties could in, engage in uh, to promote 
during that uh, period. And when the cost is lower, more manageable, more capable people apparently tend to be the nominee that they can they came forward either as independents or even from political parties. In that sense, I think reducing the cost, which is I think for in Nepal, which was getting out of hand, basically because for a few traditional parties, they are used to distributing money or goods to the voters during the election season. Nepal's diplomatic partners have a role to play as well uh, in terms of uh, keeping a continuous vigil in what the government or other local government bodies are doing. So where do you see the direction of Nepal's foreign policy and um, domestic political changes going in the next few years? Well, I think, especially uh, with foreign policy, I think Nepal has, in terms of principle, remarkable consistency in the principles that's guiding Nepal's foreign policy. For example, non-aligned alignment that seems to be internalized to such extent, or uh, the principles of Pontesil, basically non-interference in others' affairs, those five principles, or keeping the United Nations Charter at the center. These are some of the principles which have remarkably stayed. In practice, however, I think a lot of things are less rational in, in the sense that I think the geopolitical context that is manifesting itself might look quite calculated from outside like Nepal is trying to balance and so forth. But when you look at, when you look at it from inside, it interacts with personal interests of certain leaders at certain times. It interacts with the uh, kind of uh, relationship that certain leaders want to have with the general public at certain times. So it looks less rational from that political perspective. So in terms of practice, I expect the Nepal's foreign policy to be as muddy, as not exactly directionless, but with with a solid principle, but lacking discipline to follow that principle. So it'll move along that line, but in a very haphazard way. And I think another thing that I see happening in foreign policy is Nepal continuing to being reactive rather than being proactive in terms of uh, starting its own path. I think uh, we have seen that with, for example, the MCC debate. Things happen, we just put the pressure and then Nepal responds. Even with BRI, we signed, but then now the China is putting pressure for us to implement and then we are trying to see what we can do about it. Or with India, putting the blockade and then only Nepal realizing that Nepal needs other alternative ports as well to connect with the rest of the world if it wants to maintain seven percent So I think that will continue as well. The reactiveness will continue as well because with the current crop of leaders, I hardly see anybody with the vision to work in a more policy-oriented way. The good part, however, is because there are few power centers here within the political parties and their opinions about global matters are different. I don't expect any radical change in one direction or the other. So I don't expect Nepal to tilt heavily towards India, 
just because Jehovah comes to power or Nepal feels heavily towards China because Odi comes to power. I think their domestic power sources is limited in the sense that without the other coalition partners, they're unlikely to get things done. And that will keep, keep their worst in, instincts in check. So in that sense, I think I just see Nepal stumbling along as it's going on for the last 15, 20 years. I think in domestic scenario, it's more difficult to say what will happen, let's say, in the next election itself. The kind of election we had in 2022, which was like uh, about nine, 10 months back, it was something that not many of us saw coming. We saw, we could sense that the frustration is peaking, but then we don't know what sort of alternative force would these new parties form or what sort of policies would they have? Because contesting elections, casting on the anti-populist wave is great, but then translating that into real political power, political policy is difficult. And whatever we have seen in the last eight, nine years, we still are not sure what sort of political parties this new force will become. So part of what happens in the next few years will depend on whether this new political force can come together and very importantly, remain united because we have seen some alternative powers before which withered away very soon. And then whether the current government or the mainstream parties deliver even at the minimal level. So I think a lot will ride on that. So it's really difficult to say uh, how the next few years will pan out at domestic level. Everyone, thank you for listening. Today we were joined by Santosh Shamar Pudel. He is a foreign policy analyst based out of Nepal and the co-founder of the Nepal Institute for Policy Research. Santosh, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your insights. Thank you. Now, it's time to spin the globe. And our pin has dropped on Turkey. So make sure to keep an eye out in early November to hear the latest news insights and analysis surrounding Turkey. Why early November? Well, that's because this is the final episode of our Pin Drop Season 3. Thank you so much to all of our fans and anyone who has listened in throughout the season. We will be providing, as mentioned, a mini bonus series on the Israel-Hamas war in the meantime. And Nicholas Castillo, one of our co-producers, is working on an episode on Poland that might come out in the interim as well. If you want to make sure new episodes of Pindrop are downloaded directly to your device automatically, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app. To be notified of when new episodes come out on YouTube, make sure to also click subscribe and ring that bell. Our guests today were Michael Kugelman and Santosh Sharma Pudel. I'm Asia Camacho, executive producer and anchor here at Pindrop. Diego Austin was the chief producer of today's episode, and Nicholas Castillo is our associate producer. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns.